excuse me, uh, madam. Uh, which one of you ordered a business telephone? Both of me. Huh? At last, at last, I shall convince the world in my documentary voice. <laughs> Hello, folks of world. <laughs> Hello. Hello, folks of world. It's only a demonstration Hello. model. But this is the type you'll be getting, madam. Just let me have the borrowing of it, will you please? The bell is driving me mad. Don't she? worry, Sorry. don't worry. As soon as the telephone is installed, we whip the bells out. Let me have it. Let me have it. Have it. Oh, somebody. Madam. Hello, hello, hello. That's for you. Welcome to Goonpod. And following hot on the heels of the last episode in which we examined The Magic Christian, uh, this time around we're covering another British comedy film from the late 60s featuring Spike Milligan. Uh, and joining me is returning guest who is also joint host of the sublime podcast RetroTube. And uh, the man who did quite a lot in terms of actually encouraging me to start this podcast in the first place. Um, so you can blame him, folks. Uh, Adam Leslie. Today, we are going to be talking about the 1969 film, The Bed Sitting Room, directed by Richard Lester. It's a, a surreal, satirical black comedy. I like to describe it as the goon show meets the road. That sounds know, fair. Yeah, no cannibals as such. Possibly shades of Mad Max and a bit of Samuel Beckett. What do you reckon? I think so. Yes, it's how British people would behave after the apocalypse. There's actually a lot of positivity running through this film. Most, but not all, but most of the mm. characters, they, you know, they try and maintain a, a scintilla of positivity. They try to soldier on. They, they put a brave face on things. Um, they maintain that British character, don't they? Yes, it's sort of a comedy of manners, isn't it, really? I think. Yes. Is this a film that would, could this be a companion piece with Dr. Strangelove? Could this be... This know, is, is something this... I wrote down. It's like the spiritual sequel to Dr. Strangelove. Because yes. that's... That's a, a dark satirical comedy about trying pre- trying to prevent nuclear war. Yes. And this is a dark satirical comedy about the aftermath of a, as, as they put it, a nuclear misunderstanding. Absolutely. Yeah, they don't like to talk, they don't like to mention the word. The they don't bomb, mention it, do they? Do no. They? Not till the end. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's quite neat, that, isn't it? That strange love bed sitting room connection because you've got Sellers in the first film and then you've got the other two uh, in, mm. in the second film. So this film started life, I guess. I mean, originally it was a, it was a, a one-act stage play uh, in 1963 and it starred, uh, written by Spike, Spike Milligan and John Antrobus and it was uh, Spike was in it with Valentine Dial uh, John Bluthal, the great John Bluthal, Graham Starr, yes. and others. And a lot of it, as with so many Milligan stage ventures, a lot of it was improvised. And it was kind of... Oh, really? Yeah, it was kind of, I guess you'd describe it, theatre of the absurd. Mm. And then fast forward about uh, five years, and United Artists uh, decide to uh, agree to make a film of it. And so it was shot in 1968, and then movie executives viewed it and were appalled 
<laughs> so <laughs> I, I don't know what they were expecting, really. No, it's very much a late 60s film. Yes, it is. It's it is. In the, it's, a, it's in a similar vein to things like um, Wonderwall. It's better than Wonderwall. But there's a lot of strange, inscrutable late 60s films around that time. So it d- doesn't seem... Although it's unique and there's nothing else quite like it, it also, on the other hand, doesn't seem massively out of the ordinary for the time. No, not at all. So so Richard Lester, he, he was scheduled to film up against it, the Joe Walton script. Yes, uh, that's the we- Beatles one. Yes. A different one? Yeah. So, so Wharton had written that for the Beatles. So that was going to be their next film after Help, and then, and then they they decided they, they didn't want they the they great lost Beatles film. They they weren't totally enamoured with it, so it, it never happened. And it was it was then repurposed. It was going to be uh, Richard Lester was going to make a film of it featuring uh, Mick Jagger and Ian McKellen, and then uh, Orton was was murdered by Halliwell by his lover Kenneth Halliwell. And so that just got canned. And Lester was sort of scratching around for something else to do. And he was offered the bed sitting room instead. Uh, and so it was filmed in 68. And then it was, it was as I say, it was viewed by the studio executives. And they, they decided just to, to shelve it. Uh, mm. And I think, officially, it, I think its official release is 1969. But it went out in, in the UK in 1970. It didn't do very well, shall we say, but it turns up on TV every now and then. Well, I first saw it about nearly 30 years ago on, on TV. Probably the same time that I did. So, yeah, Richard Lester, uh, pre-production, he was famously depressed. <laughs> he was looking, he was sort of uh, location scouting and mm. he, he, was, he became depressed that finding suitable locations was really easy. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he said, uh, "He said we spent weeks driving around England, ignoring all the beauty spots, and then stopping enraptured in front of some hideous vista of industrial squalor." <laughs> they certainly found some great ones. I mean, I think it does look amazing. It does. It does. I mean, there's a lot of um, f- color filtering, uh, yes, particularly towards the end. Yeah, and lovely sort of colored filters and tints. It's quite striking looking. And the film was shot by David Watkin. Uh, who went on to be cinematographer on The Devils, you know, the Ken, Russell's, Ken oh, yes. Russell film, uh, which I saw once about, again, probably about 30 years ago. And my, <laughs> only, my only memory of The Devils is that <laughs> television's George Roper was in it, Brian Murphy, <laughs> playing, I think, I think he was a torturer. <laughs> I, I get a sense that in the early 90s, we were probably both watching tv at exactly the same time i think we watch all of these strange cult films on the same broadcast as each other well yeah I, I know that um your friend um and mine now adrian who has been a return guest on this uh we we talked about the film rent a dick uh, a couple of months ago mm. which again is another one of those uh films that never get sh- shown anymore <laughs> uh, but that was shown we we worked out the two of us that we both saw I think we, we did anyway. We both saw the 1991 showing on BBC Two one Friday yes. evening. As, as would I have as well. Yes, yes. So uh, we were all, it's like a, uh, a Goon Pod pre-reunion. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so in the end, the film was, was filmed mostly uh, in um, Chobham in Surrey. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Chobham. I think Surrey. so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
in a in a disused quarry. So it was quite obvious that it was a quarry. A lot of it was in a quarry, wasn't it? Mm. Uh, and uh, and also in Chesil Bank and Staffordshire Potteries, apparently. That uh, huge wasteland of discarded plates. Plates, cups, yeah. yeah. Which is incredibly surreal. We'll come back to plates a little bit later. Uh, so Richard Lester had, had previously made... Well, everyone knows, obviously, you know, yes. he, he worked with the goons, he'd uh, running Jumping Sand who's still film, he'd worked on uh, the show called Fred and whatnot. And also um, his big breakout was um, Hard Day's Night. Uh, of course. Greatest musical film ever, I would posit. I think it's certainly up there, isn't it? Mm-hmm. But then sort of prior to to this film, he'd made How I Won the War. Which with, I love. With John Lennon. Uh, and then after How I Won the War, he, he filmed a film I've not seen, which I think from memory, Year Woman, Year Woman in it, um, that was in every sort of late 60s film. What's her name? Julie Christie. Re- Julie oh, Christie. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, Petulia. That's right, which I haven't seen either. It's, it's a gap in my Richard Lester knowledge. And then, of course, we've got this, this kind of post-apocalyptic film that he went on to, to make. And it's it's quite something, and it starts with as you start the film, the music just made me immediately think of Open All Hours. Don't know about you. <laughs> that didn't spring to mind. It was very sad and forlorn, mournful music at the start. Mm. It has quite a bleak, arty opening. These shots of the wasteland and the obligatory doll's face that's burning. Yes. Which is, it's a slight cliche, but it's always powerful. It always works, and you always know exactly where you are within the first 30 seconds. You've got a close-up of a, a burning doll head. Yeah, no. And it tells you exactly what sort of film this is going to be, except in this case it doesn't really. Because no. then, uh, immediately after this bleak opening, there's a gag. There's the uh, opening cast gag. Cast in order of height. Yes. As opposed to cast in order of appearance, which is quite a funny gag. And very informative as well. We find out that the shortest is Rita Tushingham. That's right. Followed, followed by Dudley Moore and Harry Seacombe. <laughs> uh, and the, the the tallest, Michael Horden, Peter Cook and Ralph Richardson. I didn't make a note of that. Are you telling me that Michael Horden is taller than Cookie? No. 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 Uh, so Michael Horden's the third shortest. Oh, I see. And Ralph Richardson's the tallest. And Peter Ralph? Cook's just in the middle. R- Ralph Richardson's taller than Peter Cook. Goodness me. According to the opening titles. I mean, this is what I'm going on. Okay. Uh, and also, Spike Milligan is exactly in the middle. Yes, as he should be. <laughs> yes, as he always ought to be. I'm a huge fan of Richard Lester, I must admit. I He's one of these directors that sort of unknowingly cropped up throughout my childhood. So as well as me being a huge Beatles fan from about the age of six, I didn't see the two Beatles films until quite a bit later, but he they were always there in the background as a thing that one day I would watch. But also I saw Superman 2 and 3 when they came out at the cinema. They famously uh-huh. directed Superman 3. Yeah. And he co-directed Superman 2 using leftover footage from Richard Donner. Mm. So it's sort of a halfy-half one. And you can tell, actually, when you see Superman 3, knowing that it's Richard Lester film, it has that organised chaos that he yes. does so well. Yeah. And it, it, it's almost like that sort of Steven Spielberg organised chaos, but just to a slightly more comedic degree, a slightly more ridiculous degree, like the, the dominoing telephone kiosks, I think is Superman 3. Mm. And that's very Richard Lester. I saw that for the first time only about six months ago. 
Oh, really? What did you think? <sighs> um, <laughs> right. <laughs> Let me sort of cards on the table here. I'm, I'm yeah. not a fan at all of superhero films. No, I'm not. Uh, so I'd never seen. So it was for that reason I'd never seen any Superman films. Full stop. I was interested in watching the Leicester the Superman three because there was some well because there were a lot of British character actors in it for a start like mm. Bob like Bob Todd <laughs> and uh, and also there's there was a, a few little um, sort of Easter eggs there for Goons fans like Minnie Bannister gets listed in the credits. Oh really? <laughs> yeah, I never noticed that. I, I thought it was a bit of a hot mess, really. Superman three mm. better than a cold mess. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it's probably mainly, mainly nostalgia that I like it because I did see it at the cinema and it's a lot of fun when you're eight or however old I was when it came out. Yes. Uh, yes, and How I Won the War is another one of his, as we've, as we've already mentioned, and that is, I think, a severely underrated film from a severely underrated director. I will touch on this more as we go through because although... I think that this is the spiritual sequel to Doctor Strange Love. Of course, it's a completely different director, completely different source, and it has almost nothing in common apart from input from Spike Milligan, which we discussed last time. Uh, so I think actually in terms of what the film is doing and what the film is trying to do, it's closest to How I Won the War. Mm-hmm. Certainly of the Richard Lester films that I've seen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there are lots of parallels of how one film succeeds in doing it where another film might not quite succeed so well. We'll get to that. Yeah, it's funny how all these film, films interconnect because last week I was talking to Jem Roberts about The Magic Christian film. Right, yes, of course. Which features Spike um, and it's based on a Terry Southern novel and obviously Terry Southern got the gig on Doctor Strangelove because Peter Sellers had yeah. given Kubrick the magic Christian novel to read. Uh, and the Ringo Starr role was originally offered to John Lennon, but John Lennon had beaten How I Won the War and uh, didn't fancy doing another film. <laughs> he got very bored, apparently. Yeah. I, w- I don't want to go too much into How I Won the War because this isn't, isn't the How I Won the War episode. No. But it is interesting how much he wasn't the rock star on that film. So it wasn't a film like uh, The Man Who Fell to Earth or Performance, where you've got a big rock star in playing yes. a yeah, big yeah. rock star-like role. He's one of the minor characters being one of the minor characters, and he's very good in it. And, and apparently on set, he acted just like one of the other actors. He wasn't a big ego, like, I must have the biggest trailer and I must be treated and pampered like a rock star. He enjoyed the crew and the cast treating him just like a normal bloke. He found it very refreshing. I liked it better when he was a comedian. He wasn't very funny, but I liked it better. Jokes. Mind you, I'm working class. Oh, I had a grandfather who was a miner. Until he sold it. Good. Uh, am I right in thinking, did he share a dressing room or something with Michael Crawford? Yes, and, a house. Or a house, right. And he wrote the beginnings Story of Strawberry Fields. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. If nothing else, How I Won the War gave us Strawberry Fields Forever, so its existence is justified many times over for that totally, alone. Totally, yeah. But I also think so, it's a wonderful film. Yes, yeah. I haven't again. I haven't seen that for years. I should. What I should do this weekend? I should watch that. I should watch Petulia. Mm. Uh, I'm watching Juggernaut. In fact, I'll just have like a, a Richard have a Lester. 
Lester Thon. <laughs> yeah. So I'd like just to talk about the cast, principal hmm. cast. Um, we'll start with Spike because Spike, obviously, this is this is Spike's baby, or Spike and John Entropus. John Entropus being a frequent collaborator with Spike. Uh, and Spike plays. Well, the thing about this that there's only about twenty people survived this. This they, they avoid uh, if if you're. A- if the if you're a Kermode and Mayo listener, they they survive. It was what with one thing and another. So it's yeah, this, that's right. <laughs> this unmentioned thing that's happened. Yes. The, the most the most specific they get is a nuclear misunderstanding. Well, let's just actually we'll just touch on that because the cast is there's about twenty survivors and many of those survivors now have the task of embodying like entire industries. So. You have you have Spike who plays a character mate, and I'll, I'll come back to that in a minute. But he 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 kind of embodies the GPO, mm. yeah. And then you got Frank Thornton from Are You Being Served, and he embodies the BBC. And he turns up early on in the in the film. He comes in and he says, "Here was the last news," and he sort of sits in this old television casing, and 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 uh, gives us a bit of exposition. And uh, we have yes, it's a great back. gag because he has he's wearing a tuxedo. The yes. top the top quarter of him is very smartly dressed in a tuxedo, and the lower three quarters is uh, battered old long johns and covered in <laughs> yeah. filth. But he's got this old. It's, if it's not, I think it's just the front of a television set in the style of Father Ted. Um, yes, and so he yeah. just puts this up to himself, and so he appears to be on TV in his tuxedo, doing the news, and people watch him. He goes around people's houses. He's like a door-to-door newsreader. And he goes around people's houses and delivers the news to them. And he he is the BBC. He's the BBC. And so it appears that there was a third world war, the shortest war in history. Two two minutes and 28 seconds, I believe. Yeah, including signing the peace pact at the end. That's right. Little matter of 40 million dead. Yeah. Uh, It's incredibly bleak for a comedy show, for a comedy film. Yeah, yeah. Uh, unclear as to who the actual participants were so it's obviously britain against somebody or other but we don't actually really find out no they don't even know no and everyone refers to it as as we say as the misunderstanding or the unfortunate incident and it shows you it shows you the um the, the the british prime minister returning from the 449th disarmament conference and uh chairman mao is now resident in downing street so he's actually he's calling on Chairman Mao, the, the Prime Minister, uh, at number ten. And the Prime Minister, it's it's clearly Harold Wilson, and it's it's the actor Bill Wallace reprising his Harold Wilson uh, routine. Uh, did, did you recognise Bill Wallace? I did. Yes, I can't remember where I'd seen him from before. Much, I think he was in Clockwise, playing the farmer sitting on the tractor. No, no, that was um, Tony Haygarth. Oh, who, was it? Oh, okay. I get this. Who was Tony Haygarth, who was in Kinvig, the Nigel Neal sitcom. I don't know if right, you saw of that. Of course, yes. Uh, well, Bill Wallace, I know him as uh, well. He was he was one of the lead people on the Radio Four satirical show Week Ending for for years and years and years. But he was also very prominent in Blackadder, in the Blackadder series, in the sense that he was in three 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 different series of Blackadder. Uh, the first series, which was just The Blackadder, which was the filmed, mm. the shot on film, which a lot of people say they don't like and they're wrong, they're <laughs> totally wrong. Uh, he played one of the knights who attempt to murder uh, Edmund, who's become Archbishop. Okay, 
in Blackadder the second, the second series of Blackadder, he plays pleasingly. He plays uh, Ploppy the Jailer. Oh um, yes, if you remember that episode. Yes. And and then in uh, Blackadder goes forth, he plays the suspected German spy who's in hospital. That's um, right. Yes. 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 That's a very memorable character, isn't it? Yeah. So yeah, so he so that's Bill Wallace. And he, he's playing Harold Wilson, clearly Harold Wilson. Uh, and uh, there's a reference as well. So we we see him coming out of number ten with waving a piece of paper and saying, "The lease on number ten means peace in our time." Okay. Yeah. You see Lord Fortnum, uh, who we'll come to in a, in a moment, and Lord Fortnum uh, makes a reference to Lord Snowden. And then the prime minister drives away and you see a man because you see Frank Thornton, uh, who's outside Downing Street, because he's covering it for the BBC. You see him with another man as the as the prime minister drives away. Right. And I'm and I'm I'm convinced that other man was the actual Lord Snowden. <laughs> it could well have been, couldn't it? It looked like him. It looked <laughs> like him. Uh, so I mentioned Lord Fortnum. That's obviously that's um, uh, Ralph Richardson. That's Ralph Richardson, the tallest actor in this. We've got, um, as one of the few female roles, Rita Tushingham, who's an, another very familiar 60s face. Of course, yeah. She who's... plays Penny Freerton, doesn't she? Yes, whose father is Arthur Lowe, in this anyway, not not in real life. <laughs> yes. Um, and her mother is an actor I didn't recognise. Uh, Monica uh, Mona Washburn. Yes. Who is not someone I was familiar with. No, I, I knew her because I love the Lindsay Anderson film, Oh Lucky Man, which is Malcolm McDowell, and it's got Arthur Lowe in it as well, actually. Yes. She's in, she's in that. I, I recognised her from that. Uh, so, you, yeah, so you've got... And, and Rita Tushingham, obviously, she was she was in loads of those kitchen sink dramas in the 60s, mm. like... And and, um, and Bread. She was in, she was a regular in Bread for a time. Oh, really? I didn't even yeah. know that. Um, I think she was a neighbour to Nellie Boswell. Yeah, so we've got... We've got this family, as as you say. So you've got the you've got the head of the family, which is Arthur Lowe, who just plays Mister Freerton or, or or father, uh, who I think now I'm not a big fan of Dad's Army. Okay, I'll just mm. put this out there. I'm not a big fan of Dad's Army, and I've seen a few shows that Arthur Lowe has appeared in, like Potter and and shows like that, sitcoms and whatnot. And I've even seen, you know, when he clips of him when he was in Coronation Street. And I like Arthur Lowe when he's being avuncular. I don't like him when he's being officious and being petty and being uppity, you know? Yeah, that's I, interesting. Yeah. I know what you in, mean. Yeah, I, I think I, I feel similarly, although he is good bit, good at being that sort of officious, petty character. I guess it's just a, maybe just a general dislike of petty, officious people. <laughs> he is very good at being avuncular as well and narrating the Mr. Men. Of course, yes, <laughs> yes. Well, he was—he's—he's he's quite avuncular in this. He's quite—he's upbeat, isn't he? He's determined. Mm, he starts off. He—he he gets quite narky because he finds out that uh, his daughter Rita Tushingham, who's pregnant, he thinks she's just been eating too much chocolate. Respect is the chocolate bars. But she's—he finds out that she's been um, having a thing with uh, a chap in another train. They live on the underground. So this family living in live in a, a tube train that's just going round and round, presumably on the circle line. Yeah, and she goes off every so often to do. I didn't quite catch what she goes off to do. 
for a smoke. So she, she goes off so, for a smoke, right? So so the tube train will stop at each station and the doors will open, and so it gives you a you know if you want to get out and go into a, a different uh, carriage, you can do. And so she will get out to go and have a smoke in a different carriage. Mm. Yeah. So she's obviously she's meeting up with this this guy Alan, played by Richard Warwick, who I who I, I didn't recognize him. And I've never really seen him in anything else, but I've looked up and yeah, he's been in quite a, he, he died quite young, but he was in quite a few things like the fine romance and um, please, sir. He was in he had, uh, right. a, a regular role in that as well. Uh, and and if, he was the lead in a film called the breaking of Bumbo, which <laughs> sounds, he bit, had to be. <laughs> it sounds like not, not the sort of film I want to watch, but so she's, yeah. So she's been carrying on with Alan and, and, and her dad and he's, catches he's them. Your- He's your late. He's your typical late sixties lad about town. He's wearing yes. the white suit, the the patterned orange shirt and the tie, uh, and very much that kind of untrustworthy cad sort of character that you got in those days. He's, he's like something from Blow Up. Yeah, he, he is out of Blow Up. He, he's blasé as well as he's very mm. blasé. Nothing is everything's trivial to him. Yes, really? he's a bit of a Jack the Lad, but not in a cheeky Cockney working class world. He's, he's more of a sort of middle class Jack the Lad, a bit entitled and mm-hmm. smarmy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I want to go back to, to, to Spike because I, I touched on Spike being this character, Mate. Now, Mate, it, it's... Mate, yes. Yeah. So so obviously you had William from The Goon Show, the character William Mate Cobblers, who was played mm-hmm. by, by Peter Sellers. But it was one of the few Sellers characters that Spike could kind of appropriate and um, and take on. And he would, in his you know, after the post goons, he would regularly do this kind of character. This it does uh, seem to be one of his favourite recurring characters to do. I think it's it's Mate and Eccles are the two that you'd just see yeah. turning up time and time again. He'd he'd come and either do the Eccles or he'd, he'd do that. And I think because Eccles is based on Goofy, he is an American derived character with an English accent, but mm. mate is such a British character. He is that Jobsworth, isn't he? You expect him to, he's either the janitor or the doorman, some kind of institution. He's like more than my job's worth, mate. Yes, he is. Sort of yeah. You, you, you can't get in here without a chit. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he is. So he's, he's kind of like, he's, he's embodying the GPO and he's delivering things and, and whatnot and he kind of he's he's not that prominent in the film he, he kind of weaves in and out of the film mm, doesn't he, he because burbles away in the background and lurks a bit yeah uh, and i would say that the, the person with the most screen time is michael horden's character mm. and and michael horden is um captain buell's martin and here's the thing by the way i, I grew up with because you, you mentioned arthur lowe on the, you know the mr Men, mr men series yes, of obviously michael horden was the voice of paddington mm. and it's interesting that there's a scene later on where, where uh, captain buell's martin meets the shelter man who will come to in a bit mm. and the shelter man uh <coughs> ident- identifies their location as being paddington oh and, of course and, he's, yes. and he says to he says to michael horden don't you know you're paddington <laughs> Was he doing Paddington at this stage? I don't, do you know, I didn't check. I don't think he was. No, I think that was later on in the 70s. Uh, I think yeah, it was, yeah, I think it was a... 70s, wasn't it? That would be interesting. Yeah. That's a nice yeah. coincidence. That's but one I, of the I things I like about this film is that it's set in London. But yes. it's this bleak wasteland that's it's been totally flattened. There's almost no ruins at all. Well, St Paul's it's... is underwater, isn't it? Yes. 
it's just the dome of St Paul's poking up above the water as this this watery landmark. The same year uh, as Planet of the Apes. Oh, so this was filmed yes. in 1968 along with Planet of the Apes, which of course also has the the famous of landmark course. poking up, and it reminded yes. me a lot of that. But it, and this is towards the end of the film as well, like Planet of the Apes. A line I found quite effective was Michael Horden coming across this ruin of St. Paul's and just says, I love St. Paul's. Yes. <laughs> Horden's there at the beginning of the film. He's sitting on this mountain of boots, isn't he? And he's... Yes, trying to find pears. <laughs> and it's am- I'd love to know how they put that together because it's, yeah. it's a it's a veritable hill of boots is it all boots or do they, is if they constructed something and then put a layer of boots on top That's probably yeah to probably they put yeah, uh, uh, and so yeah so you've got you've got captain Bules martin michael horde and, and he is visited upon by lord fortnum and lord fortnum is concerned that he well he's he has this, he has this ailment he has this condition um, oh, and by the way, I hear, there's a there's a great sort of goon type gag here. Don't be sharp with me, young man. My card, Kennington and District Steam Laundry. Oh, I am. Oh, no, that's not me. I've left the space for advertising. I am other side, Lord Fortnum of Allaby. It's easy to miss some of the gags, actually. Like it's it it's very dense, which is yes, good. It is. it is. A lot of apocalyptic films can be quite empty. They've got one or two ideas. And then mm. they just drift around doing those couple of ideas. And this is sort of the opposite, that it's absolutely crammed with ideas. It and is. And that's the thing that keeps you going through it. They don't Sorry. all pay off. They, they don't, don't all pay, pay off. off. But no. it's it's good to have something that has so many ideas in it just to see what will work. And a lot of them do work and a lot of them don't work. But there's so many that it doesn't matter so much for the ones that don't work because they, they've gone and you're on to the next idea. And there are a lot of brilliant ideas. Very strange. Very surreal. But what is it that Mark Kermode says? He'd rather watch a film that aims high and fails. Yes, which I think is, good, is a good point, yeah. Than a, than it, a film just, that doesn't try at all. Mm. Mm. And it did remind me of a lot of art films. It, I was get, Particularly the scene on the Hill of Boots with the um, his, his, what was left of his house set up nearby, which seemed to be like a living room in one wall. That reminded me of Hodorowsky very holy mountain which is a it was a little bit after this i think that was early 70s right i haven't so, seen that yeah so he hodorowsky does this, those very surreal and quite stagey images there's this one memorable thing in holy mountain i mean there's lots of memorable things in holy mountain but there's a, a firing squad there's an execution by firing squad at one point and then the camera pans over the bodies lying on the floor and then these little birds start flying after the gunshot wounds so that gives you some right. idea of, of what sort of film that is. But right. it, it's another film that's just crammed with very strange, surreal ideas and these very memorable images. Well, does that kind of suggest the end of this film where you, you get these these fresh buds of plants sprouting through and mm. na- nature seems to be returning um, yeah. out of all the bleakness? I think so. I was also getting Bunwell, mm-hmm. uh, The Phantom of Liberty, which is Bunwell's sketch film. Is seventy, so again after this film, but the, the, um, he did a, a Python esque film in right. the seventies called The Phantom of Liberty, which is quite surreal and not particularly funny. Okay, uh, I think the main one, those um, Jean Luc Godard's Weekend. Oh yes, I have seen that. 
Yeah. Oh, thank God. Thank God. Prob- <laughs> <laughs> Probably again at the same time that I saw it when it was shown on TV. Yeah. It, it, it's an incredibly brutal film and even more difficult to watch than this one, although for different reasons. But it has quite similar things. So this has a big. Uh, one of the images in it is a big traffic jam, but all the cars are wrecked, but people are still living in their cars in this mm. traffic jam, including mm. um, Roy Kinnear. And one of the most memorable images in Weekend is a this big apocalyptic tailback of cars that are still... They're not wrecked cars yet, but the, the camera's... It's one of these long shots where the camera's panning for... like It's something like 20 minutes it's going on for. Yeah. And yeah. the cars are getting more and more wrecked, and there's... It, yeah, it's it, it descending into apocalypse and there's f- cars are on fire and there's bodies on the road as it goes further and further along this along this tailback. And a lot of the other things, it, it, it ends up with hippies living out in the countryside and in a sort of post-apocalyptic society. Uh, mm. It's But it's a lot darker and a lot more brutal. Yeah, it's, it's not a Sunday afternoon film. It's really not, no. Mm. It's quite horrible in places, but it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I have to watch that again. I haven't watched that yeah. for years. That was um, 67, so that was a little bit before this. So there's a lot you... of that sort of thing doing the rounds at this kind of time. Roy Kinnear appears as, officially, he is Plastic Mac Man. Mm. Which, and he, he appears to be this kind of rubber fetishist... <laughs> um creepy kind of he's just he, he is the he is the the film pervert he is mm. and he's doing the roy kinnear thing yes which is not a slight on roy kinnear he has a he has an act he has a shtick but honestly i could watch the roy kinnear shtick for hours he's so good at it oh yeah even though he's essentially doing the same act and playing the same character he's very good at switching it between just playing a bumbling everyman, like he does in How I Won the War, or he, he can play it really dark, like he does yes. in Blake Seven. He turns up in Blake Seven playing quite a dark character, and quite, quite a sinister character, who on the surface seems lovable, but then he can just turn. And he can... He's got that great... It's difficult to describe, but he's always just a bit undermined by everything. Yes, so he is. He does, yes, he he does is. that sort of chuckling, and then a grimace off... Uh, what? <laughs> as if he's just yeah just everything's just undermining him all the time uh and in this he's got this there's a scene where he's he's kind of hooked up to the 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 guy who is the electricity man he hooks up this kind of i don't know what it is it's this handheld appliance which he uses to massage his chest and other <laughs> <Yes>. regions <laughs> he's just getting his thrills from this this little vibrating thing which i'm not sure what it is do you know what that was i think it's just a massager is it it's some is it body some massager. sort of rudimentary 1960s body massager i think so yeah um and you, later on you see him giving michael horden's character uh Buell's martin you see you see roy kinnear giving him a haircut but it's such a python it's such a python-esque scene mm. where he's not actually cutting his hair he's just holding up pictures of the back of a man's head drawings <laughs> even <laughs> And and of course, there's there's also another scene with Horden where they're both waiting to have a, a sperm test, uh, of, sorry, a virility test. Grunt, grunt, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, we also got um, 
Peter Cook and Dudley Moore playing floating policemen. They're in a, a balloon, uh, a erect police car suspended from a helium balloon. Yeah. And they're floating around, per- periodically berating people for standing still. So they like to keep everyone on the move so that they don't get attacked by nuclear war again. Yeah, keep moving. Keep moving, yeah. And the other person we have, the other main, although he's not really a main character, but certainly for the benefits of this podcast, he's a main character. Sir Harry Seacombe turns up in quite a sinister role. Yeah, so he, Harry plays shelter man. He's like a a conspiracy theorist. Yeah, he's, he's a survivalist. Yeah. Ex- yeah. Yeah, he has film. He's he's carrying around loose ends of film, so not on a reel, they're just loose bits of film and they they prove things. So he's quite a prescient character really. He comes yeah, he he rings true as quite a modern character in the internet age as somebody who's got all this proof on these bits of films of all these these conspiracies. I can't remember what he's talking he's talking about various Kennedys I think at one point. Yeah, and he's also obsessed with LBJ with um, yes. Lyndon Baines Johnson. He is. <laughs> We find out he shot his wife, Mildred, and his mother, and his mother, as they pleaded with him to let them in his shelter. <laughs> mm. So he's, this is this is Harry Seacombe playing an incredibly dark character, and he's got this anatomical diagram of a female on his wall, which he's now married to. Mm. <laughs> yes, it's it's quite bleak. My general overall thought on the film is that it so nearly works. It's so very nearly a really great film. And it, for me anyway, it just doesn't quite work. It doesn't quite reach that jaw-dropping bleakness that I think it nearly has. Mm-hmm. And I think a big thing for me is the music. It has okay. Ken Thorne's music that burbles throughout certainly throughout the first three quarters this this it, it's this kind of this is comedy music yes so all this stuff's happening on this really horrible wasteland and you get like we say a character like that harry seacombe's playing really juxtaposed against his normal personality i mean he's got the normal harry seacombe personality but the things he's done he's he's shot his wife and his mother and now he's dating an anatomical model on the hung on the wall, but the music's going. This is comedy, um, and I think had it been playing out either in silence or maybe something a bit more radiophonic or something to contrast with it a bit more or something other than that sixties. This is comedy music. I think it would have mm. landed tonally a lot better. So I think it, it's not, I mean, everyone laughs at different things, but for me, it's not quite funny enough to be a proper laugh out loud comedy. Although there were bits I, I did laugh out loud at, but consistently it's, it's the comedy is undermined by the bleakness, but it's not quite bleak enough to be really, oh, that's, you know, oh, this is good. Yeah, you're right. It's falling between two stools, isn't it? It really? does, and it never quite lands on either one successfully. <clears throat> and I, I mentioned How I Won the War before as a film that I sort of wanted to contrast it with, which I think gets that almost perfectly, that it has the zany comedy moments in it, which, again, a lot of them aren't really that funny. And maybe it's because World War Two is an actual thing where the post-nuclear apocalypse 
is more of a fantasy, certainly in this context. Yes. That when How I Won the War goes dark, it goes really dark and it really hits. And there's a particular scene where um, Ronald Lacey's character, he plays this young private, he eventually has a emotional breakdown, a nervous breakdown at one point. And the Sergeant Transom starts berating the camera who at this point has not been part of the film it's not a it's not a faux documentary it's just a feature film but at that point it becomes a documentary and he starts berating the camera and therefore the audience like haven't you seen enough go on, move on you've, you've seen enough leave, leave the poor lad alone but the camera's yeah. just standing there watching it and then it cuts to the two ladies from help so gretchen franklin and dandy nichols who are the same, the same two ladies that stand next to each other and help and in help and comment on the beetle going yes. to the house yeah yeah they're in the cinema watching this and they're just going they're just sort of saying really mundane things yeah they're just two ladies at the cinema go oh you know it's terrible what's happening <laughs> with this really awful this character that we've followed all this time having this and and it's not a comedy break. It's not a comedy nervous breakdown he's having. He's playing it totally, totally straight. Mm. And at that point, all the zaniness and all the wackiness goes completely, and it it really lands, and it's proper you know shiver down the back of the neck moment. Yeah. And I think this nearly has some of those, but they never quite connect in the same sort of way. Mm. No, you. No, I probably I think I like this film more than you. Well, yes, I, I'm sure I do. But I can see what you're saying for sure. Mm. It's um, it is it is disjointed. It is quite it is very loose, but not in a good way necessarily. Mm. Um, yeah, it, it, the, all the, the ideas in it keep you going through, but it doesn't. It needs a kind of Alice stroke Dorothy character to follow to to take you through it. I think. Yeah, yeah, As absolutely. Opposed to the disjointed. Everyone's vignettes. a fo- everyone's a fool. Yes, this. there are no people in it. No. Just no. Oh, well, well, Rita Tushingham almost, almost. But she's quite bland. She's sort of playing the girl. She's she's being she pregnant. Swinging sixties girl. She doesn't have much more to her than that. And it's it's a lot of white middle aged men. Mm. Mm. The three women in it, I think, there's Rita Tushingham, Dandy Nichols at the very very end. But it's <laughs> yes. mainly Rita Rita Tushingham and Mona Washbourne, her mum. And I think though I think everyone else in it is men. Yes, I think so. Yeah, and men of a certain age as well, mostly. Oh, well, well, hang, hang, hang on, and, and Harry's um, cardboard wife on the wall. <laughs> yes, Harry's cardboard wife. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, I, I touched on the fact that near the beginning of the film, Lord Fortnum visits uh, Captain Buell's Martin, who's a doctor, <clears throat> because Fortnum believes that he's turning into a bed sitting room. Yes, hence the title. Hence the title, and and as we as the film goes on and we see Ralph Richardson, uh, he's gradually turning into a bed sitting room. He drops a brick from his trouser leg at one mm. point, um, and then yeah, eventually he he turns into this uh, a room in the middle of a wasteland. Yes, in which also because yes, people are mutating. Is it these are nuclear mutations? So. The mother character turns into a wardrobe. Um, yep. Arthur Lowe, the dad, turns into a parrot who's then eaten by his daughter and son-in-law. Yeah, that's quite <laughs> that's quite something. Yeah, I actually like the last quarter the best because that is when it tips. It 
gets a lot more weird and a lot more grim in that final quarter and mm-hmm. that's when for me it just it, it came alive when it, it really tipped over there well threshold. yeah because penny's been pregnant for 17 months mm. with alan's baby it's not it's not the chalky bars she's been she's pregnant yeah. and um and eventually she gives birth to this this child that we don't see mm. and i think she calls him rupert and then rupert dies Yes, um, and again, not in a comedy way, or an absurd, an absurd way that she she just said, "Oh, the baby's died." Yeah, and everyone's sad for a moment. And Spike Milligan's mm. character, and this is, you know, as you would expect from Spike. Spike Spike looks very, uh, you know, Spike's very affected by the death of mm. this baby, and then he starts drinking the bottle with the baby milk. Oh, what a shame! What a shame! Here, here, darling. I'll drink that silly, silly old milk up for you. Right. Hey, look, he's already got the hang of it. Look, darling, why don't we adopt this one? Hmm? (laughs) There we are. There's his rattle. Didums want his rattle, then. Didums want his rattle. Piss off. Listen. Darling, his first words, piss off. Piss off. Uh, you, you mentioned that the mother figure she turned into a wardrobe, so she she got lost from because the rest because the, the Freerton family, which is mum, dad, Penny, and mm. then this boyfriend Alan, they leave the underground. Mm. They go into as as they're leaving, they go into the lost luggage office, and for reasons that we find out later, uh, Jimmy Edwards is in there. Yes, uh, uh, he is lost li- property. He is lost property, lying on a lying on a shelf, and he begs them to take him take take him with them but they don't so he climbs into this trunk that they're about to take and so they end up carrying this trunk which has got jimmy edwards in it <laughs> and they carry it all around they, they go up into the into the open and they carry this trunk all through the film mm-hmm. uh at one point the mother figure she gets a death certificate because we've got we've got someone we've not mentioned marty feldman Marty yes, Feldman I is, did is... like the Marty Feldman gag. We first see him when he's looking through binoculars. Yes. And the, binocul- <laughs> the binoculars are not parallel, they parallelly face outwards like his eyes, and that's yeah. it's the Marty Feldman binocular gag. Yes. <laughs> he he represents the NHS. He's Nurse Arthur. Nurse Arthur, yeah. There's an air of menace to Nurse Arthur, mm. isn't there? And he presents the, the family with mum's death certificate. Which is actually one of the bits that I think works the best. Mm-hmm. I I like that. It reminded me. There's a bit in um, Catch Twenty Two where Doctor oh, yeah. Nika is apparently killed, even though he's not. Yes, yeah. He's booked to be on a plane that crashes, but he doesn't. <laughs> he's not on the plane, but everyone just treats him as if he's dead anyway. Yes. And it reminded me a lot of that. So she's given a death certificate, and it's the two younger characters, so Rita Tushingham and her trendy boyfriend they are outraged and they say you can't she's not dead she's right here she's fine she's she's not even ill but arthur lowe and the mother herself they're very accepting of this and oh well she had a good run and again yeah totally treat her as she's actually dead and i love i think it's marty feldman's line you may have lost a wife, but you've gained a certificate. <laughs> Which Arthur Lowe's delighted with, isn't <laughs> yes. it? And it's again, it's another example of them conforming mm. 
following yes, the, the rules. Yes, the younger characters don't, they kick against it, but the, the middle-aged yes. characters, they just accept it and conform. But Mum's alive! Well, I thought I was, dear. By rights, I should be, but how can you tell if it's here in black and white? Give it to me. I shouldn't, should I, Dad? Only upset her to read it. Give it to me, dear. I'll put it somewhere safe with all the others. The health cards. Look, Mrs. Froden, there's nothing wrong with you. Nice, kind boy. It's your wife being alive that seems to be all the trouble, sir. I'm sorry. Ah. Well, I'm sorry. We don't want to cause any trouble. Oh, now listen, Mum. Penny. Don't argue with the nurse, dear. She's she's bound to know best what's best for us. Do I lie down or anything? The way the way I'd like you to look at it is this: you may have lost a wife, sir, but you've gained a certificate. I expect you've got the set now, if you haven't been careless with them. I uh, do hope we haven't been careless with our papers, uh, birth, marriage, death. And school. Ah. Mum got her school. Actually, thinking about it, I think Mother might be my favourite character in it. Because she doesn't play reactionary middle-aged person. She's very calm. She's very accepting of uh, her daughter having this thing with this boy, this man. Uh, and she's very sanguine all the time. She is. Arthur Lowe is up to a point. Yes. At one point, she falls through the ground into Harry Seacombe's lair. You remind me of my first wife. That's funny. You see, I never met her, you see. Will you do for me what my first wife did? Doris tries, but she, she can't coordinate, you see. Will you do it for me? Well, so long as we get it over quickly... Before Daddy misses me. Now, 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 Mildred, now, now, now. See reason, Mildred. Mildred, you're worse than your mother. I, I didn't, Mildred, I haven't. She's a common garden secretary. She's, Mildred, please, I love you. Please, she'd be something to me at all. Mildred, don't take me to the office. Can you, Mildred, I love you. Mildred, please, no. The people next door. Mildred, please. Get out, you slut. Get out and leave me alone. That was my best dinner service. Hearing Harry Seacombe call somebody a slut, I don't know if I want that. (laughs) No, no. It's established that Penny is pregnant Mm -hmm. and that Alan is the father, and they don't seem too put out by it at all. No. Mum certainly isn't. Dad is momentarily, and then he kind of just gets over it. And then and then he, to, to me, possibly my favourite gag of the film is where he takes a shine to Alan and says, I want you to treat me just as you would your own father. <laughs> yes, that was funny, wasn't it? <laughs> And then, and then Alan begins to violently strangle him because <laughs> because he hated his father. <laughs> the one, it wasn't my favourite gag, but it's the gag that really made me laugh out loud was towards the end where um, Spike Milligan has a Van Gogh paint, Van Gogh painting, Van, Van Gogh painting. Van Gogh, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's looking to see where he can hang it on the wall. So Michael Holden points. And Spike Milligan hangs it on his finger, which I'm sure is a regular Q-series joke, but yeah. it always works. Yes, absolutely. It's, it's yeah. classic Milligan. Um, <laughs> also, the line I wrote down around about then, 
I'm being compromised internally in front of my daughter. Which is mother uh, when she's turned into a wardrobe and yes. Michael oh, Horton's yes. climbed into her and she's not, she's unsure about this. I think she quite likes it in the end, but she does complain about being compromised internally in front of her daughter. Well, Michael Horton, here's the thing. The Michael Horton character, Captain Bules Martin, mm. he's obviously a randy old goat. Yes. Now, he notice, he meets the family or he meets dad and he meets Penny and Alan. And this is just after the sequence where, uh, is it Dudley Moore and Peter Cook have measured uh, Arthur Lowe's inside leg? And it's 22 <laughs> inches. Yes, and he's convinced this will make him the next prime minister. <laughs> yes. Uh, and, and Horden comes along and he notices Penny and he asks Arthur Lowe for permission to, I don't know, squire her, take her out, mm. whatever. Because he's obviously got designs in her, and then and then it's it's automatically agreed that that that, that he's going to marry her. Mm. Father decides, yeah, he's a perfect, you know, he's he's a good good stock, good family. You know? um, and she kind of just she just submits, really, doesn't she? She's she's not happy, but she just she doesn't really put up a fight. And we have this this wedding. <laughs> Spike comes along, GPO man comes along with instant <coughs> god kit. Uh, <laughs> And then, and then Horden has to dash off for this virility test because he doesn't know if he's up to the job. And, and so Penny and Alan end up rolling around on, a, on, a, on the bed on top of the bed sitting room, uh, uh, keeping up. And, um, and Arthur Lowe comes along and, and sees them and says, but you're promised to Captain Bules Martin, you slut. And then she says, we're already married, Daddy. And he goes, oh, that's okay then. <laughs> yes. Prior to this, we see... There's a scene where uh, Bules Martin gets a phone call and he, he, he's having a one-sided conversation and we assume he's talking to a lady. And then at the end, we find out he's been talking to someone about his missing friend, Nigel. Yes, he's in love with Nigel, I think, isn't he? And I, he is, yeah. It's it's a rare progressive moment, I think, that mm. he is... I mean, I presume this makes him canonically bi because he's clearly got a thing for Rita Tushingham. But he seems to be in love with Nigel. But this isn't a gag, really. I don't. It's not played as a funny gag. I mean, it may be part of the surrealism of it, but it, he doesn't see. It's not like a ooh, he's gay sort of thing. Did you get no, that no, from it? no, no? He's not. He's not camp at all. Mm. Um, and also, so here's the thing. So yeah, so he fancies Rita Tushingham until he realizes that she's pregnant and she's basically with Alan, and he kind of accepts that. Uh, but then he he gets some pleasure from getting into the wardrobe, which is Penny's mother. <laughs> but he's also um, in love with this mysterious character, Nigel. Uh, yes, I don't know if we should leave some mystery to it as to who Nigel turns out to be. Yes, that's, yeah, well. It's a, it's a payoff, a minor a payoff. payoff, a very minor payoff as to who actually <laughs> Nigel is. As said before, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore are hardly in it. Uh, they don't make much of an impression. And Dud Dudley gives early signs of turning into a dog, and yes. and then you know by the end the of the character film, does he, anyway. The character does. <laughs> yes, <laughs> we've got the Roy Kinnear character, Plastic Matt Man. It's almost like he panics and he says the word bomb. 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 The bomb. Mm -hmm. bomb. bomb. The bomb! 
And there's this kind of mass consternation as if by him saying that word, they're all... It's going to start again. Well, they all it's like they all have to actually formally recognise what has happened. Oh. And acknowledge acknowledge yes. what has happened. It's making it real by giving it a name, mm. isn't it? Well, but there's then, one point at which they think the there's there's another attack. There isn't. Yes, but they, they believe yes. there's another attack in progress, and that's another point where it's it goes serious for a moment. Yeah, and the gag stop. There's a bit of that, another bit that I liked where Marty Feldman's Nerth Arthur, Arthur during this supposed attack where there's there's gas or some kind of cloud or mist coming over, he's crouched on the floor, crouched on the ground. With his hands covering his face, just crying, please God, not again. Oh, yes. So there's, yeah. there's no gag at all there. One thing we haven't really t- talked about is that the fact that there's so few survivors. Uh, the person next in line for the throne is uh, Mrs. Ethel Shroke. Yes. Of uh, 393A High Street, Leytonstone. Which <laughs> makes the new national anthem, uh, Long Live Mrs. Ethel Throat. And this is a difficult thing to say. It is. God save Mrs. <laughs> Ethel Shroke. Long live Mrs. Ethel Shroke. And she, and she, so at the end of the film, she has decreed that all will be well with the world and that uh, uh, Britain will become a first class nuclear power once again, which is uh, heartening. Yes. <laughs> um, and then every, it, it just, the sun seems to come out, doesn't it? And mm. you, you see, you see plants beginning to, to sprout and you see Spike takes his, his, hat off and smiles and then and then there's a stirring declamation by peter cook who's essentially assuming power is the new prime minister i think so watch out yes <laughs> so no he says so watch it yeah he gives this rousing speech and says well i'm in charge now so watch it <laughs> and yeah and i get the sense that he's going to be something of a fascist he has that, that sort of way about him that he won't he won't be a benevolent character uh and then we have the national anthem just before the credits roll we have the national anthem with dandy nichols on a horse looking perplexed shall we say Mm. um and she's and she's uh, positioned under a huge arch made out of rusty old white goods yes Um, for appliances made into made to look like marble arch yes Uh, and 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 that and that is the film um, it's quite a thing, isn't it? It's it a is. Film that I, it's a film that I really wanted to like more than I did because it is so bursting with ideas, and there's so much going on and so much that's fascinating about it. But I think, like we said earlier, it just tonally falls frustratingly. I, I, I can see, like, if I was if I was producer, I can see the notes I would send down just to tweak it, just to make it into a really great film. And it's that that sort of frustrating thing that. <laughs> You can see exactly what would turn it. There, were, I think that it was kind of the era of very self-indulgent comedies, mm-hmm, for that sure. Sort of mid to late sixties, that these these sprawling comedies, and this one at least has gags. I think a lot of these comedies, and I think a lot of sixties comedy in general, and that's a very blanket statement. Uh, so I, I might have to rephrase it, but there's a there's that zany style of sixties comedy where it's enough just to not be taking yourself seriously, and that's what's supposed to be funny. We're just not taking it particularly seriously, and we're doing wacky things. 
in a very silly way. Yeah, there's so many, like you say, so many films of that period, that late 60s. Uh, Modesty Blaze as well is another one. Mm. Um, and, and and the good thing, I mean, Spike isn't being too zany. Spike no. Isn't, Spike isn't being um, the Spike who would turn up on chat shows and talk over the host all the time and just take be totally irreverent. You know, Spike, Spike's in and out. He's he's in it just enough, I think. Harry, I, I think Harry is Harry seeking in this is is really good, yeah. Because he's playing, he's totally playing against type. Uh, I I still think Harry Seacombe should have had a sitcom. He should have been given a, a sitcom vehicle. That's quite an omission, isn't it? Really, mm. like mm. when you consider all the people who did have sitcoms that Harry Seacombe never did. Because he, because he's, you know, he's not not been in that that many films, but in the films he's been in, he's made a pretty good job. You know, he's been mm. a pretty decent fist of them. And he's uh, another one like Roy Kinnear, but also like Michael Horden, essentially does the same role over and over again with different shades. <laughs> yes, and I think Harry Seacombe as well does the Harry Seacombe thing. In the in the New Yorker, Pauline Kale reviewed this film. One laughs from time to time, but. As in so much modern English far-out satire, there's no spirit, no rage, nothing left but ghastly, incessant, sinking island humour. <laughs> Crikey. I mean, I don't totally disagree. I don't. No. I don't fully agree either. Uh, it's not as. It's not as bad as that. I think it's a very good portrait of Englishness. And I think that's possibly what she's not picking up on is that it is mm. a satire. It, it's a comedy of manners, a lot of it. There is, that's the thing about this film is that even though for me it's not a very satisfying watch, talking about it and looking back on the notes, there's so much really good stuff. And we could probably sit in a pub or something and talk for hours about this. Yeah. But uh, but, but the, the clock is against us. It and, is. Uh, it but yes, does, thank you does. for having me on. It's a lot of fun. So yeah, so Adam, so you know, people who who don't know RetroTube, what's uh, what's you know, just a quick overview of what RetroTube podcast is and where people can hear it. RetroTube podcast is an archive television podcast because there aren't enough of those about already, and mm. it is uh, my best friend Heather and I, and any regular listeners to this podcast will remember Heather giggling delightfully <laughs> some weeks ago on her episode. Uh, so it's yes. Heather and I. And we take it in turns to recommend each other a TV show from the 60s, 70s or 80s, which means a lot to us. Either we grew up watching it or we've come to it retrospectively. And it's something that the other either doesn't know at all or isn't really familiar with. Uh, and then we watch it and talk about it and chortle a lot. And it's usually a lot of fun. Which is how it should be. Yes, I think so. You can take your uh, iPod or your podcatcher to your local branch of Boots and get it made up with uh, the tube. Mm. Yes. Thanks again to Adam. Uh, tune in next time, folks, and uh, and spread the word among friends and family. If anyone you know, you know, likes old British comedy being uh, discussed in excruciating detail by a slightly nasally Kiwi, then uh, direct them hither. Uh, please follow me also on Twitter if you're not already. It's at GoonshowPod. Um, also the uh, Goonshow Preservation Society. They're at the GSPS. Thank you for listening. See you next time. Until then, bye.